Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. Germany, 1938. Adolf Hitler ordered 12,000 Polish Jews out of their home, out of the country, overnight with just a single suitcase per person. Hitler had spent the past five years building resentment toward Jews, blaming them for Germany's defeat in World War I, taking their rights away one by one, including forbidding them from marrying non-Jewish Germans, 
and from being hired for civil service jobs. The 12,000 people were put on trains and sent to the Polish border, where Poland refused to let them in. They were left there in the rain for days with no country. Herschel Grinspan received a postcard in Paris from his parents, who were left waiting at the border, asking for his help. Herschel responded with a postcard. My dear parents, I could not do otherwise. May God forgive me. The heart bleeds when I hear of your tragedy and that of the 12,000 Jews. But I must protest so that the whole world hears my protest, and that I will do. Forgive me. Herschel slipped his postcard in his pocket, not even mailing it. He bought a box of bullets and a gun, went to the German embassy, and asked to see someone on the diplomatic staff. He's pointed toward the third secretary, Ernst von Roth. These two men may have been lovers, history is unclear. Either way, André Gide even mentions Ernst von Roth in his diaries as well-known in the Paris gay community. But whether or not Herschel was his lover, Herschel still made his protest for the abandoned Jews. He fired five times, hitting Ernst in the abdomen twice. In retaliation, the German government forbade all Jews from carrying weapons of any kind, and they banned Jewish children from schools and stopped all Jewish newspapers. Hitler's propaganda minister told Nazi leaders that demonstrations should not be prepared by the Nazi party, but should they spontaneously erupt, they're not to be stopped. And so on November 9, 1938, Hitler Youth and Nazi sympathizers shattered the windows of over 7,000 Jewish-owned businesses. 267 synagogues were destroyed, and Jewish homes all over Germany were ransacked. Dozens of people were murdered, hundreds committed suicide. Tombstones were overturned, and libraries were set ablaze. Glass shattered onto the German streets in a night that will be called Kristallnacht. In Berlin, a young American woman was staying with a Jewish family. She had just won a fellowship to study at the Institute for Psychotherapy. As Germany erupted in riots, the young doctor listened in the next room as the family's youngest daughter cried and begged her parents to let her be Protestant. The little girl didn't understand that you couldn't just stop being born Jewish. She wept through the terrifying night. Soon after, the family was sent to a concentration camp, and the doctor returned to America. The doctor, Evelyn Gentry, begins teaching introductory psychology at UCLA. She's a much more sympathetic and understanding doctor because of her experience in Germany, and perhaps because she's read books like The Well of Loneliness. Her most outstanding student, Sam Fromm, comes to talk to her during class breaks and walks with her downstairs at the end of the day. He gives her rides home so she doesn't have to take public transit. When Sam completes her class and is no longer her student, he calls and asks if he can come over. They spend the evening chatting with Evelyn's husband, Don, who is a screenwriter, and they all quickly become friends. Sam leaves, and Don asks Evelyn, Well, you told me everything else about him. Why didn't you tell me he was queer? How could you possibly tell? He did everything but fly out the window. They invite Sam back over, and this time he brings his cousin, George. Sam describes Evelyn to George as nearly six feet tall and another Eleanor Roosevelt. George isn't really his cousin, but they aren't sure they should be open yet. They want Evelyn's approval so much they're afraid to let her know they're gay. Gradually, as they grow closer to Evelyn and Don, they relax. In 1945, Sam and George take Evelyn and Don to San Francisco to see the show at Finocchio's. People don't know what we are. I can't study you because you're my friends. I can't be objective about you. We can get a hundred men, any number of men you want. 
She already has a ton on her plate with 18 hours a week teaching and animal research, but Evelyn goes to her shared office and tells her colleague, Bruno Klopfer. He's an expert in Rorschach tests, the ink blots. He jumps out of his chair shouting, You must do it, Eveline! You must do it! Evelyn's impression of him is way better in the documentary, but he says, Your friend is absolutely right. We don't know anything about people like him. The only homosexuals they know about are the people who come to them as patients, who are already disturbed or pathological. Evelyn is certain the current thinking that all homosexuals are pathological is wrong. So she decides to prove it. Previously. For the present, you can reach us via the phone number of the Mattachine Society. Our own private phone is still a future project. Phones cost money, you know. Mona will spot undercover cops and signal sex workers, flash their lights, or suddenly change the music if they spot a cop coming in. Boarded windows, backroom dance floors, and coded language. Which were the men and which were the women? An effeminate man swishing into a bar suggests sexual solicitation inside the establishment. I want you to love me. Undercover officers will follow him inside. Wait a minute. This house will not appear disrespectful. If someone walking in doesn't seem queer, the clientele watches them. Butch femme roles among lesbians are expected. Insidious illusion. Police raid the bar, and the state board suspends the liquor license. Swiveling hips, falsetto voices. They are perhaps the most openly rebellious and defiant of all homosexuals, wearing their sexual orientations like a lavender badge of courage. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. She starts with the ink blot tests, and all of her gay friends want to be included in the study. <clears throat> now don't talk to anybody else about what you saw in the Rorschach. Don't tell them how many responses you had or what you saw. But she can tell by the similar answers, over 50 to 75 tests, that they're definitely talking to each other. But she can at least see that most homosexual men have varying personalities. That means they don't constitute a clinical entity. She sees what she already thought was true. Non-conforming sexual behavior and conforming social behavior can go hand in hand in one person. Around this time, Don files for divorce. His alcoholism has torn the relationship apart. Evelyn briefly goes to Philadelphia, but returns to UCLA in 1948. She hits it off with a new friend, Helena Hooker, who invites Evelyn over for dinner at her home in Brentwood. Helena and her husband, Edward, live on an acre of land down Saltaire Avenue with a small orchard and a little house on the side. After dinner, Helena whispers to Evelyn, I'm leaving my husband, and I'm not coming back. Would you like me to talk my husband into renting you the house once I'm gone? It's only 15 minutes from UCLA, and Evelyn needs a new home, so she rents the little house next door. On her first day in the little house by the orchard, Edward invites Evelyn inside for dinner. They realize they both got their PhDs from John Hopkins on the same day in 1932, but never met. He continues to invite her in for dinner, and they slowly fall in love. By 1951, Evelyn Hooker is pretty comfortable. She's not teaching so much, and she's very much in love. Looking through her old research, she realizes her study of homosexuals is useless without a control group. Upon hearing the National Institute of Mental Health has been founded, she gets an idea and writes up a grant. If the NIMH approves it, she'll do the study for real. The following year, the American Psychiatry Association publishes their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, listing homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disorder. So it makes sense that the chief of grants at the NIMH wants to come spend a day with the kook who applied for a grant to study these sociopaths. 
and claims she has access to any number of them? Dr. John Eberhardt visits Evelyn, possibly to be sure she's not homosexual too. He realizes she's legitimately interested in studying these men. Well, I can tell you we're prepared to offer you the grant. You know what it's called back there on the ranch? It's called the Fairy Project. Okay. Dr. Hooker takes the grant and goes to the UCLA psychiatry chair to request him to be her consultant. I'm studying normal male homosexuals. What do you think you're doing? There is no such person. He reads over her application. I have never seen such persons, but I sure would like to. So he signs on. Dr. Hooker gathers her men through one ink in the Mattachine Society, who take up volunteers for her, including co-founder Chuck Rowland. She tells Chuck, You have an absolute genius for organization. Of course, many homosexuals do wonder if they might be sick. They want to know the truth. They're constantly told they're sick, and the discussion among some of them about it is persistent. Their community's publications begin to print articles like the beginning of this one from one magazine titled The Margin of Masculinity. First, watch your hands. No other physical factor is such a dead giveaway of the homosexual. Next, Johnny, learn the upright posture of masculine males. To avoid the danger of ever lolling too prettily, don't ever let the knees or feet touch. It is impossible to strike an overly graceful pose while the legs are sprawled. A miserable trait common to many homosexuals is that of complaining about services received in public, kicking up a fuss over real or fancied slights. When you carry a small package through the streets, never clutch it high on the chest. Skip the gentle expletives, watch your adjectives, and use superlatives sparingly. He goes on describing a blonde, limp-wristed man he saw in a bar. His face could have belonged to any plain and overly self-conscious girl, and when he ordered a draft beer, the lyric timbre of his voice did nothing to dispel the illusion. His black leather jacket with its bulky lines would have been out of character had he worn it in the usual manner. Instead, it was thrown around his shoulders in the fashion of a cape, and I knew that sooner or later he would pull it close against the ravages of some naughty little draft, after first touching the collar to be sure it stood up in the back. A dark outcropping at the roots of his fluffy peroxide hair suggested he was slovenly, or maybe just tired of being a blonde. I have never had any real understanding of this sort of person, and there was a day when I detested any semblance to his kind. Now, thank God, I felt a kinship with him. I knew that if the two of us were ever to be accepted by society, the likes of him must first be accepted by the likes of me. Accepted without condescension, accepted with the conviction that the only true measure of right behavior and wrong is whether one's actions are harmful to himself or to others. A virile facade wouldn't have changed the weight of this man's mind, the structure of his emotions, or the shape of his soul. And though I would always reserve the right to avoid his type in forming friendships, I knew we were brothers. And so many homosexuals decide it's time to examine their minds. Dr. Evelyn Hooker becomes rather famous in homosexual circles. In the mid-50s, Christopher Isherwood even moves into the little house by Evelyn's orchard. He says, She never treated us like some strange tribe, so we told her things we never told anyone before. She interviews men in Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles, and each and every man puts his reputation at stake because they can be followed. They can't even conduct the interviews at UCLA because if a man enters Dr. Hooker's office, anyone who sees him might assume he's a homosexual. Tests are often conducted in her home, down the winding road through her private orchard surrounded by a brick wall. She keeps her information confidential, often erasing tapes after information is recorded from the sessions. McCarthy's men even watch Dr. Hooker's work from afar, though she doesn't know it. 
She does Rorschach tests, thematic apperception tests, and make-a-picture-story tests in order to unconsciously reveal anxieties, fears, and fundamental personality traits. After she finds her 30 homosexual men, who are all Kinsey 5s or 6s with no extended therapy or arrest records, she then looks for her control group. Hetero men are more difficult to convince to participate in a sexual study. She looks for every opportunity to ask. While reading in her study, she hears steps coming down her driveway. Evelyn peeks out the window and sees firemen coming to check precautions. She runs outside. I hope we didn't disturb you, ma'am. Oh, no. I was just working in my study. Oh. You're a writer? No, not exactly. I'm a psychologist. Would you like to be in my project? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't. I have to work. What about your days off? I, I have boys to take care of. How about I pay for a sitter? After he takes the test for Dr. Hooker, the fireman introduces her to a cop. He does the study in exchange for marital advice. Edward Hooker says, No man is safe on Saltaire Avenue. Two years later, Dr. Hooker has her 60 men studied. So that she doesn't get accused of being too close to her subjects, she submits the results to three judges, all psychology experts who don't know who in the study is homosexual or heterosexual. They look through the results, rating each subject on overall psychological adjustment on a scale of 1 to 5, superior to maladjusted. One of the judges is Bruno, the Rorschach expert. He's sure he can distinguish who is homosexual and who is not. Many of the experts tell Evelyn, you'll never get away with this. Your face will reveal who is who. But even Bruno can't figure it out. He's amazed. Evelyn is thrilled. Looking through the tests, some judges say, there are no clues. I just have to guess who is homosexual. All of the judges rate two-thirds of the studied men as three or better. They find no inherent association between homosexuality and maladjustment. One of the determined judges asks to come back another day to try again. She summarizes her findings in the first issue of the Mattachine Review, shortly after Sam Fromm dies in a car accident before Evelyn publishes her study. His desire to understand his secret community inspired Dr. Hooker. Now she takes the stage with the results at the American Psychological Association Convention in Chicago, August 30th, 1956. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Evelyn Hooker. It seemed highly probable that few clinicians have ever had the opportunity to examine homosexual subjects who neither came for psychological help nor were found in the mental hospitals, disciplinary barracks in the armed services, or in prison populations. This, I recognized, would be fraught with extreme difficulties, and so it was. Dr. Hooker's report, The Adjustment of the Male Overt Homosexual, argues that upon her examination, she finds that homosexuality must be understood from the perspective of a minority group. At first, she had told the Mattachine Society to avoid the minority approach, but it appears that scientifically, Harry Hay was right all along. She finds that homosexuals' mental health is normal, not the result of pathology. She already knows homosexuals have their own community of gay bars and street groups, organizations and friend groups, places like Finocchio's and other gay bars that she's experienced for herself. Her study shows that negative mental health found in any of these homosexuals isn't based in pathology. It must be due to their similar oppressions in life as a group or inner group pressures they've kept on each other, such as misplaced misogyny. She goes in a different direction than Kinsey, not just studying sex, but looking at their relationships as a subculture. The negative effects on their mental health come from legal pressures and arrests and bars for showing affection. Coincidentally, she doesn't even know, the night before this presentation, an astronomer's arrest in a San Francisco bus terminal will soon lead to his own downfall, causing him to join the movement that she's advancing. 
After the presentation, many people approached Dr. Hooker. What a light that sheds. Astounding. Dr. Hooker returns to California to have dinner with all her gay friends in the study. She promised she'd let them know the results of the presentation. This is great. We knew it all along. I didn't meet with the straight men. They didn't have the motivation to follow an old lady around. Not long after, a young lesbian approaches Dr. Hooker, telling her that when her parents found out she's a lesbian, they put her in a psychiatric hospital. What means most to me, I think, is if I went to a gay gathering of some kind, I was sure to have at least one person come up to me. The lesbian psychiatrist had read Dr. Hooker's report and prevented the other doctors from giving the young lesbian electroshock therapy. She tears up, telling Evelyn, I've wanted to meet you because I wanted to tell you what you saved me from. The results of Evelyn Hooker's study do not have immediate legal results. Bars are still shut down as resorts for sex perverts. The American Psychological Association still lists homosexuality as an illness in their DSM. But word spreads through the homosexual community, building self-esteem in those who read her findings. They begin to accept themselves as healthy people and as a cultural minority. Step one in the call to action. Looking through the mainstream psychology texts, a lesbian named Barbara finds that she's declared sick for the feelings she has. She doesn't agree, and she demands better answers. How could she be sick when she's only felt love for women? She even dated a boy in high school in order to double date with another couple because she felt affection for the other girl. How does that make her sick? How can such a smart person be sick? Barbara Giddings qualified for the National Honor Society, but was rejected on the grounds of character. A teacher took her aside and said it was because of her homosexual inclinations. What are homosexual inclinations, she wondered. Barbara spends days in the Northwestern University Library in Evanston, searching through texts that only tell her clinical language and nothing of love. Instead, a secondhand bookstore gives her the answer. A book passed down from a queer ancestor, donated to the bookshop, is there waiting for Barbara. A paperback copy of The Well of Loneliness. There, Barbara finds queer love. She continues to hunt for answers. She skips classes and flunks out as she searches psychology texts, legal books, encyclopedias, and of course, fiction, ultimately leading her to Donald Webster Corey's The Homosexual in America. On the newest episode of my bonus podcast, we heard Stella Rush's resignation letter to one magazine. Next week, hear Mattachine Publications director Hal Call as he takes to the airwaves of KPFA on November 24th, 1958. He's joined by attorney Morris Lowenthal, who is defending the black cat in court. This is a real recording. Also featuring Dr. Blanche Baker, who wrote the introduction to Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar. And Dr. Carl Bowman was there, who will be featured prominently in an upcoming episode on transgender history. So lots of characters colliding in real life here. Check out this bonus episode on patreon.com slash queer serial. Click the link in the episode notes. This episode is supported by Stitcher Premium. You can join Stitcher Premium for all kinds of fun shows by using the promo code MATTACHINE for one month free. And you get a lot of cool stuff. You can listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like My Favorite Murder or My Favorite Show, The Rachel Maddow Show. And in addition to that, you get Stitcher original shows like Science Rules with Bill Nye and You Must Remember This, the Hollywood History Podcast, another favorite of mine. Plus, get access to comedy albums and more. Only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today. Use promo code MATTACHINE for one month free. And now, back to Barbara Giddings. During her quest for her people, she moves back closer to her home state, 
to Pennsylvania. Dressed as a boy, she spends her Saturdays hitching rides with truckers from Philly to New York to search Fourth Avenue for gay fiction. In Philadelphia, she finds more homosexual friends. Barbara puts on her butch look so women in the bar know she's one of them and heads out with her friend Pinky, a schoolteacher. He's getting friendly with a couple uniformed Marines in the bar, and the four of them head outside. Suddenly, the Marines turn on them, putting on brass knuckles and kicking down Pinky. They beat Pinky right in front of Barbara. When they're done, they look up at her. We'd beat you too, Sonny, if you weren't wearing glasses. They jump in their car and drive away. Barbara picks up Pinky and rushes him to the hospital. He gets 13 stitches in the face. They don't call the police. They know they'll just get a hard time from them. Barbara doesn't just demand answers now, but also justice. On one of her hitchhiking trips to New York City, she has a meeting with the author of one of those important books, Donald Webster Quarry. Quarry tells her about an organization seeking rights for homosexuals called One Incorporated. They're in Los Angeles. Barbara books a flight and heads out in 1956. She goes to One. They're more writers than activists, currently completing their new book, Homosexuals Today, a handbook of organizations and publications. It's the first directory of gay organizations and publications in the U.S. and all over the world, complete at 188 pages. And that's pretty cool, but they suggest Barbara check out the Mattachine Society, which is really growing now up in San Francisco. She travels up to see them. The Mattachine's new president is headed up there, too. President Ken Burns writes to Hal Call. I am my usual displeased self. You are undoubtedly in great need of material. Some of the things you used are the worst you have ever used, far below the original intent of the magazine. He's upset over the Mattachine Review, over a sketch of a fully nude man that originally appeared in a Dutch magazine called Friendship. The headline above him says, Casting a Spotlight on Human Sex Problems for Thinking Adults. Thinking is in all caps. Since when do we have to show everyone that we are effeminate? Or indeed, a person whose thoughts and dreams are about sex or the unclad person. But another article speaks out against Puritanism. What does the average American homosexual want? Someone to go to bed with once. While Hal has been vocal about his understanding of police raiding the parks, he's been hosting private sex parties, which were allegedly amazing, and he's becoming less shy about his sex positivity in the publications. Ken Burns finally gives up his gavel and quits the presidency. Many of his friends follow behind him. He remains a member, sending in his dues and occasionally writing to Hal with advice, but his L.A. chapter dwindles. One of those remaining members, a college student named Ron Argall, who had recently joined the Mattachine, he excitedly writes to Hal Call, eager for a chair in San Francisco. Hal approves, encourages Ron's election, and then asks the board for permission to move the Mattachine National Headquarters up to San Francisco to operate alongside his magazine. Barbara Giddings soon shows up there, too, seeking advice for activism. The men take one look at her and point her to the corner, where the lesbian group, the Daughters of Belitis, rent an office from them. Barbara greets the women, who are planning their first issue of their own magazine. She requests to be put on their mailing list. They invite her to attend a meeting. Of course. Barbara joins a room of about a dozen women. She's never seen anything like it. Upon her return to the East Coast, she eagerly awaits the first issue of the latter, which arrives in her mailbox in a brown paper sleeve in October 1956. Two women, one in tailored slacks, the other in a skirt, look up a ladder, which reaches into the clouds. Written just above the clouds is 1956, first rung. The mimeographed magazine, one of 175 copies printed, is edited by Ann Ferguson, a.k.a. Belitis co-founder Phyllis Lyon. 
The articles avoid politics, choosing instead to focus on poetry, history, biographies, and lesbian literature in general. On the back cover, the daughters have written their slogan, Qui vive, on the alert. Their magazine hopes to teach the lesbian to elevate herself out of societal pressures and self-hate. They want her to find self-esteem and then reform social norms. Soon a whole stack is sent to Barbara Giddings. After they're printed by Pangraphic Press in San Francisco, Hal and the daughters ship off copies to activists in Chicago, L.A., and Barbara in Philly, who loads them into her Volkswagen and delivers them to bookstores in New York and Philadelphia. The latter is found in Detroit, Cleveland, and Dallas on the newsstands beside one magazine in the Mattachine Review. Women all over the country pick up copies to see the Daughters of Belitis' calendar of events. There's a picnic on September 30th and a group bowling outing on 30th and Mission on October 13th. Meet at the coffee counter. The first of a series of discussions on lesbians' fears, both real and imaginary, will be held on October 23rd. Then a Halloween party on the 27th. But it's not just socialization they're promoting among lesbians. They also want social change. Editor Ann Ferguson writes, It is to be hoped that our venture will encourage the women to take an ever-increasing part in the steadily growing fight for understanding of the homophile minority. President Del Martin adds, Women have taken a beating through the centuries. It has been only in this 20th, through the courageous crusade of the suffragettes and the influx of women into the business world, that woman has become an independent entity, an individual with the right to vote and the right to a job and economic security. What will be the lot of the future lesbian? Fear? Scorn? This need not be if lethargy is supplanted by an energized constructive program, if cowardice gives way to the solidarity of a cooperative front, if the let Georgia do it attitude is replaced by the realization of individual responsibility in thwarting the evils of ignorance, superstition, prejudice, and bigotry. The issue also has a tribute to the recently deceased Dr. Kinsey, written by Dr. Harry Benjamin. Put a pen in him for another day. On the back page of the latter, a questionnaire asks how the DOB can best help lesbians. While the Mattachine Society is fearful of even using the word homosexual in their new constitution, the latter prints the word lesbian, always with a capital L, in all of their prose. They proudly reach out to their sisters, and the readers reach out to theirs too. Women pass the magazines from friend to friend across the country. Lesbians in big cities send their copies to friends in small towns. It's totally new to people who only ever had sad endings in pulp novels. The mail for Dell and Phil starts stacking up. What kind of women are you, sticking your necks out and doing this kind of thing? She includes a dollar for a year's subscription. On October 31st, 1956, the daughters receive a letter from reader Sherry Horn. After reading your first issue of The Ladder, I was deeply impressed and fully intended writing you at once. Now that I've read the second issue, I simply cannot let another day go without telling you how deeply I appreciate you sending me this wonderful publication. The latter is exactly what the name implies, a way up and out of the dark confusion and despair which so many of us live in. How rapid the climb shall be depends on all of us, not just a few crusaders. Dr. Kinsey's Institute in Indiana thanks the daughters for their complimentary copy of the first issue and requests all subsequent issues for their library. Then a letter from J.M. Cleveland, Ohio arrives. I cannot tell you what a source of both inspiration and pleasure the latter contained for me within its pages. I, as an invert, can only know of what momentous importance such a movement as yours can mean for the ultimate good of all of us. One of the insertions in the latter caught my attention and I could not help but muse over it with some irony. The part about come out of hiding. 
What a delicious invitation, but oh, so impractical. I should lose my job, a marvelous heterosexual roommate, and all chance of finding work. I would be blackballed all over the city. Women continue to remain fearful, necessarily so. The women they seek to join, who they consider professionals, are often too scared to join or subscribe. Many of them have children. Jeannie Knapp, a Salt Lake City school teacher and reader of the first issue, writes in, How do you or any of the other members know that I or someone else who might learn of this new organization are not police women? How can any of us be absolutely sure that our names are safe and not subject to persecution by any number of sick laws which exist in many states, even in this day and age? After a September police raid of a lesbian bar called the Alamo Club in San Francisco, the latter's second issue reports... Called into the city jail and booked on the charge of frequenting a house of ill repute were reported 36 women. At the hearing the following Monday, we understand only four of those arrested pleaded not guilty. We feel that this was not due to the actual guilt on the part of those so pleading, but to an appalling lack of knowledge of the rights of a citizen in such a case. There is a marked reaction to fear and retrenchment among the lesbian population of San Francisco after the recent raid. House of ill repute is a prostitution charge. But most of those women were lesbians not doing sex work. Cops basically blur lesbians and sex workers due to a long history of anti-prostitution laws used to regulate queer spaces. The daughters announced that an attorney will speak at their meeting to inform women of their rights if arrested. They'll print a guide in the next issue. Again, unlike Mattachine, which pushes for assimilation and integration, DOB is protective of lesbian spaces. This second issue responds to Jeannie's concerns. An article titled, Your Name is Safe by Ann Ferguson, declares, Already, with only one issue of the latter published, we have run up against the fear that names on our mailing list may fall into the wrong hands, or that by indicating interest in this magazine, a person will automatically be labeled homosexual. This is not so. After two issues, the daughters are no longer printing on the Mattachine's Mimeo machine. After all the writing, typing, and paste-ups are done, daughter Helen Sandoz begins secretly taking the issues to her job at Macy's after hours. She prints the next three issues at that Macy's on Union Square, in an act that some activists will start calling corporate grant-taking. Sandoz sorts, staples, types the address labels, envelopes the issues, and mails them out to women all over the country. Many women work one night a week at the office, but just before a latter deadline, it usually is every night of the week. Helen nearly got caught in the Macy's office. After too many close calls, the daughters will find a professional printer. Readers look forward to the magazine showing up in their mailbox, and they find themselves longing to join the calendar of events in San Francisco. They write to the daughters that they're dreaming of migrating. I think I should like living in San F. I wonder what it would be like. We envy you there in Frisco, having the splendid opportunity to get together over a cup of coffee rather than a fifth to discuss the problems that beset us and spend worthwhile time and effort in trying to find a solution rather than the intent of seeing who can drink the most, and then so fortified, shake a defiant fist at the world. Ladies across the U.S. aren't the only readers of the new magazine. That November, the San Francisco special agent in charge sends photocopies of dozens of Mattachine Review issues to the Los Angeles office. At the bottom of the stack, he adds a copy of the debut issue of the latter, noting their goals, the meaning of the magazine's name, and that they're the feminine viewpoint in homophile publications. He also sends it along to the New York field office, explaining that there's not a DOB chapter there, but someone out there is planning to open one. 
While Ron Argall clears out the Los Angeles Mattachine office and packs all their furniture and files into his car for San Francisco's new national headquarters, Barbara Giddings is in Philadelphia, writing to all the women on the DOB mailing list within a 100-mile radius of her home to start DOB chapters throughout the East Coast. As the FBI watches, Barbara will soon receive a letter from a woman named Kay Lehusen out in Boston, who was interested in finding women like her. Kay has been attracted to women since childhood, when she kept a scrapbook of Katherine Hepburn photos, but she was raised in a very conservative Christian scientist family. So when she realized at 19 that she was in love with her best friend, she felt so ill that she was down for two weeks. Her family thought Kay had the viral pneumonia going around. She came out of her funk and ended up being lovers with her friend for six years, all through college. But eventually, her lover couldn't accept life without marriage and heteronormativity. We'll always be the separate little twosome, off to the side without any friends. She married a man. Kay is left behind. She hears the marriage is quite unhappy and the man is always in charge. Her love never speaks to her again. Kay rips up every photo of them together and tries to love men, but of course it doesn't take. In Boston, researching for the Christian Science Monitor in their reference library, she's still miserable in her love life. Kay decides it's her turn to research herself. She also finds homosexuality filed under things like vice. One book, called Voyage from Lesbos, The Psychoanalysis of a Female Homosexual, by psychiatrist Richard Robertiello, claims the author has cured a homosexual. Kay sets up a meeting to ask him questions about what makes a person homosexual. It's all her pretense to ask the real question. How do I meet others? Oh, if that's what you want, that's easy. He reaches over on his desk and picks up a magazine. Here, this is published by the Daughters of Belitis. They have an office here in New York. You can call them up. Here's the phone number. That's enough for me. She writes him a check for the full hour, though she was only in his office for ten minutes. Kay leaves with the copy of the latter. As soon as she's back in Boston, she reads the whole issue, thrilled, ready to find and help other lesbians. And if New York's chapter doesn't have women she's interested in knowing, she'll go to Chicago. And if not there, San Francisco. She writes to New York for information. Barbara Giddings writes back. At the new Manhattan Daughters of Belitis office, Kay Lehusen assumes she'll enter a packed room. But it's a small space they share with the new Manhattan Mattachine chapter. Two women named Marion Glass and Florence Conrad wait for her and invite her to their DOB picnic of about a dozen women. When Kay shows up in her bright colors, Barbara Giddings is there. Barbara is immediately taken by Kay's red hair. They are immediately taken with each other. All over the country, chapters of both the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society begin to sprout up. As homosexuals find each other there, new relationships begin. And while the government creeps into their flourishing organizations, it won't just be FBI interference that undermines them. It will be jealousy, spoiled romance, and an insatiable hunger for power that poisons the movement. And it'll all be done with just a single photograph. Next week on Episode 5, In the Library Lounge. About five months after Dr. Hooker presented her report at the APA convention, her husband Edward Hooker died of a heart attack. But she carried on. She worked tirelessly for gay people pretty much for the rest of her life. She became rather famous in gay circles. She was invited to visit the Kenzie Institute the year after her paper was published. She was invited to lecture in Europe. Between 1956 and 69, she published 12 papers on homosexuality, all of which disproved Dr. Irving Bieber's work, who I'll talk about a lot in episodes to come. This is the type of research Hal Call and other homophiles wanted done for the movement. 
1967, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health told Dr. Hooker, we want to sweep this out from beneath the rug, and he asked her to write a report on what the Institute should do about gay men. She wrote that homosexuality should be decriminalized and that rights should be equal. Of course, Nixon's administration then delayed publication of the report, so one magazine published it without permission in 1970. Dorleg said it contained clear-cut calls for action. Dr. Hooker later retired, but started a private practice for mostly gay and lesbian clients. And she's totally the type of therapist a gay person needs, because she wrote about bars, baths, and cruising spots as social institutions. Dr. Hooker lived until 1996 to the age of 89. Her work pushed the movement toward removal of homosexuality from the American Psychiatric Association's DSM. But not on her own. Many people will have to help. Stay tuned. On the edge of your seat? Listen to bonus episodes at patreon.com slash queer serial. Forgotten Fairy Tales features standalone stories, deeper dives into stories that didn't make the cut. I follow characters from Queer Serial's main storyline on their own journeys. And you can listen to discussions between me and some of the real activists from the movement. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash queer serial. Click the link in the episode notes. Patrons also get other fun rewards like buttons, mugs, photos to the research process, transcripts of episodes. A huge thank you to some of my top donors for waiting very patiently for season two, Healing Tales Productions, Brian Feller, and the darling Nick Otto Wang. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, San Francisco. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. One in particular use for this episode is the fabulous documentary, Changing Our Minds, The Story of Dr. Evelyn Hooker, featuring interviews with her about her life's work. It's amazing. She gives a speech at the end of this documentary that will absolutely wreck you. For more stories and visuals that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. I've recently posted photos of, obviously, Dr. Evelyn Hooker, and photos of the book in today's episode, Homosexuals Today, published by One, as well as some very cute photos of Barbara Giddings. Please, please, please rate and review the show on iTunes to boost the show to more people, and share the podcast with your friends and family anywhere on or off the Kinsey scale. Voice actors. Dr. Evelyn Hooker was voiced by my lovely mother, Rennell Goff. Dawn was voiced by my grandpa, Steve Camp. Helena Hooker by my granny, Faye Camp. Edward Hooker by my dad, Matt Camp. This is a family-heavy episode. Sam Fromm by Jacob Wallace. Dr. Eberhard by John Roth. UCLA chair by Garrett Williams. Fireman by Evan Camp, my uncle. Man at the conference voiced by a sweetheart named Guido Goetz. Woman by... <laughs> Woman by Emily Baytek. Gay Man by Dan Unser. Woman Number 2 by Demika Victorian. Florence Ray by Amanda Victorian. Sherry Horn by Tandria Young. Marine by Mike Kanish. Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle. Kay Lehusen by Katie Spleet. Hal Call by Dominic Caruso. Phyllis Lyon by Jane Sorenska. Del Martin by Salvio Gatto. J.M. by Anne-Marie Fraedo. Jeannie Knapp by Tina Munoz-Pandaya. Kay Ferris by Lucy Jones. And Dr. Robertiello by Keith Green. A massive thank you to all the actors, friends, and family who donated their time and talent to the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. Thank you for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. Okay. You gonna start, oh boy? Yeah, so you see, okay. see him outside. So excited. Okay. Oh boy! Okay, do it one more time. Oh boy! Okay, sorry, one more time. Too, too loud. Too excited. Oh boy. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, I hope we didn't fight. I hope we didn't disturb you, ma'am. Oh no, I was just working in my study.